All right. Let's open our Bibles to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel. The two chapters uh, that we're, we've been looking at, we began chapter 11 last week and we're going to finish chapter 12 this evening, certainly are one of the most difficult chapters for us to go through. Because we, we look at the life of David and we see these, these horrible sins that David had committed and just the, the ramifications of those sins in not only his life but the life of, uh, of the nation of Israel. And I believe these passages, these chapters that we're, we've been looking at, 11 and 12 specifically, are very uh, pertinent to our culture that we're living in. In fact, I think in every culture, these two chapters have really uh, just challenged not only the unbeliever, but especially those within the church. Because adultery and fornication are, are something that is pre so prevalent in our society. And it's even very prevalent, unfortunately, in the church. We see leaders Men of God pastoring large churches falling into sexual sin. And we see that and we, we, we kind of, it doesn't seem to phase us when we hear about that in the corporate sense, but when we think about it in the church, these things ought not to happen. And so, these are very difficult verses, very difficult passages if you recall, last week we looked at chapter 11, and it says that David, um, they, they were, the children of Israel were going out to battle the Ammonites. The Ammonites were an enemy of Israel, and David had besieged uh, Rabbah, which is the name of a city of the Ammonites, the chief city of the Ammonites, and the name of that city is actually Ammon Jordan today. It's the very same city back in antiquity. And so David and his army, they besieged that town. And when you besiege a town, you just basically camp out around it and you cut off its supplies, its food supply, its uh, um, water supply if you can. And you just kind of try and starve the people out, making it much easier to take the city over. So there's not much of a battle because by the time you break through the city, after some time, the people are so emaciated and weak, they're easy prey to, to take over. And so David should have gone out to battle, but we see in chapter 11 that he did not. And he stayed back at home. And one night he was restless, if you remember, and he was outside of his, uh, on his palace, and he was on the top part of that, walking around. And he looked down, and as is customary for a king to have all of his mighty men, their homes, around uh, the king's palace. And so he is up there on the palace one evening, and he sees... Uriah the Hittite's wife, whose name is Bathsheba. And he sees her. And he calls for her. And he takes her into his home and obviously has a relationship with her. And because of those little ones in the room, I'm going to try and abridge this a little. <laughs> um, and ultimately, she is with child, you recall. And so David hatches this plan, if you recall, 
to bring Uriah the Hittite back from the battle, from the siege, and bring him home. And he'd been gone for months. All right, this is a, 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 they say that uh, this battle was really a, it was about two years in the planning, meaning that it was two years before the city would actually fall. So besieging takes much more time. And so Uriah and Bathsheba have been apart for some time. So there she is outside, and she's bathing, and so he calls her, and, and uh, he has the relationship. She becomes, she conceives, and as a result of that, David calls for Uriah to come back home, and certainly his plan is to, is to get an update on what is happening in the siege, and the real motivation behind that was to get him to come home so that he would go and be with his wife and as a result of that, as adults, we understand, he's hoping to cover up what he had done. And when he was not successful in getting Uriah to do what he would like to have him do, then David hatches another plan, and he basically writes a letter to Joab, seals it, puts a signet on it, and hands it to Uriah to take back to Joab at the siege and in the letter is basically Uriah's own death sentence. Instructions David gives Joab to, to get up close to the wall of the city and put Uriah in the thickest part of the battle. And then right when he's at the thickest part of the battle, to retreat from him so that he would be ultimately killed. And that was successful. And so word comes back and David finds out and David, you remember in verse 26 of chapter 11, it says, When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing, notice, that David did had displeased the Lord, obviously. This man had had a, an illicit relationship, and then to cover it up, he murdered her husband. Now, why is this in the Bible? Because it's very applicable to us today. In fact, the Bible says that the Word of God is there for our admonition, for our learning. These things are here for our understanding and for us to grow. And there are certainly warnings, aren't they? As we read these things, I don't know about you, but whenever I read this chapter, it just scares me to death. It scares me to death. Again, because adultery is so prevalent, even in the church, even in the church. In the world, they don't care. They just, you know, but in the church, really? And yet it is. And so there's a lot for us tonight to take into account, to really examine our own hearts. And none of us may have done this in the flesh, but let me suggest to you that in our mind is where it happens first. And some people are on that level some people have already done that in their mind. And the next step, if not taken care of, if, if our mind and our heart is not put in check and, and we're not brought under the conviction, left unchecked, we will continue until that desire is brought to fruition. And not only that, men, also with pornography, 
this sort of thing is front and center for us tonight because Jesus said, if you even looked at a woman with um, impure thoughts, that you have committed adultery. And how many of that, how many of us online or here has that affected? And so this is an insidious thing. And so David here is, um, you know, I love the fact that the Bible doesn't try to candy coat its characters. These are real people, obviously. In the, in the Bible, the Holy Spirit sees fit to not keep David um, from being in this light. He exposes everything. And if he does it for one of his own, a great man like David, he can and will do it to us if we're not patient or if we're not willing to confess, if, if, our, if our lives have gone in a direction that we know it's not supposed to go and we're continuing in a sinful behavior, God can and does at times expose us and hopefully it doesn't happen publicly. The Lord would much rather deal with these things privately and have us come into agreement with him and then be done with it. But left unchecked, God will expose it. In fact, I've, if I had to label this chapter that we're going to look at tonight, I would say your sin will find you out. It's a, it's a topic that everybody loves, isn't it? <laughs> it's a topic that you're glad you came tonight to hear. <laughs> and I say that with tongue-in-cheek because it's very difficult. It's a difficult chapter. So Uriah or, um, is killed. The message of it comes to Bathsheba, and it says that, And when her mourning was over, when her crying and mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David did had displeased the Lord. Hey, Mark, can we bring this down just a little bit? It might be the location of where I am in front of the speakers, just a little bit. Okay, that's good. And um, so let's read just the first 15 verses of chapter 12, and then we're going to get into it, and then we'll continue onward. Notice what it says in chapter 12, verse 1. So after all of this, then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor, the rich man ex had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except for one little ewe lamb, which he had brought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And so David's anger, obviously, was, was aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he did this thing, and because he took had no pity, and then David, or excuse me, then Nathan, Nathan said to David, David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives in, into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why then have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? 
You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife. You have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now therefore, notice the consequence of the sin. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord. And here's where the hammer drops. Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. And so David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However... Notice, again, another consequence. Because of this deed, you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. And notice another consequence. The child also who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. So this is a horrible situation. A horrible situation. And yet this is being played out in so many lives in America today. Maybe not the murder so much, but the adultery, yes. People that have been close to me, people that I've known have, that this has happened. This has happened. And it's time that we take a very good look at it. And we ask God, say, God, would you cleanse my heart? Would you purify my heart? That I would not even look upon a maid. I remember uh, Job made that commitment. I've made a, a covenant with my eyes that I would not look on a maid. And, and it's not just men today. Now it's women. And now things are getting really strange. The things that I would blush to think about women doing, they're doing today. So it's really important that we take heed to the truth of the Word of God. And we take heed to our own hearts. For it, for out of it comes forth the issues of life, doesn't it? So we need to take good care of this heart. We need to guard it with all diligence. Are you guarding your heart with all diligence? Guard it. It's so precious to God. Do you know your heart is precious? And not just your physical organ pumping blood into your body, but the seed of your emotions, everything that you are, your heart. That thing that makes decisions, that thing that's, Tempted, that thing that is, can be dissatisfied and needs some kind of release. Let's go back to verse 1. There's a lot of things in this chapter. Notice it says that the Lord sent Nathan to David. The fact that Nathan had to come to David was certainly the Lord's mercy for David. Because David was not willing to address his own sin. Now David had been wrestling with this for about a year. Can you imagine? A year has passed by from the, from the adultery and from the murder, and now a year goes by. And during that year, David was dying inside. 
He was dying inside. It was like a cancer eating at him. He knew that what he did was wrong. The conviction of God was upon him. And there were times where I'm sure he tried to fight off that conviction. Have you ever done that? Have you ever had a, a, been convicted by the Spirit of God and then you found, your, you found something that you could do to release yourself from the conviction? You found something to do to get your mind off of it. You tried to do anything to quell that, that conviction. And, and unfortunately, because of our nature, our old nature especially, we find ways to numb that conscience. We don't want to deal with it. And David was at that place. He knew he was wrong. But a year goes by and his heart is still in, in, in tumult. We, we'll read Psalm 51 tonight and we'll see the kind of tumult that his heart was in. How he was in agony. And sin is, a, is an awful thing like that, isn't it? Left unconfessed, we, it just eats us. It eats us from the inside out. We can't sleep, we can't think. It seems like everything that we pray is just hitting the ceiling. Our worship starts to fall apart. Our relationships horizontally fall apart because this relationship vertically is falling apart. Everything is falling apart. And notice that if this relationship is good, chances are that everything on this plane is going to be well as well. But when this breaks down, everything falls apart. Everything. And I believe it was the Lord's mercy that he sent Nathan. I think the Lord was looking at David and his turmoil and his guilt and saying, David, how long is it going to be before you finally break? Before you finally just confess it and own it? Just own it. And the Lord looks down and sees his son just in anguish. And the Lord says, you know what, I can't, I can't let you go on like this. And Aren't you glad that you serve a merciful God like that, a loving God? Now, most people would say, well, if he's a loving God, he just let me be. No, but God is a God of love, and he hates to see what sin does to you and me. And if we leave it unchecked, God will intervene, and he'll bring it to our attention. And if we're not listening, he'll bring it to someone else's attention to come and tell you. And that's what happens here. He loves us enough to not want us to continue in agony. And so the rich man, and so, um, excuse me, it says that um, Nathan gives him this parable. This parable. And he says, and he came to him and said, there were two men in the city, one rich and the other poor, and the rich man had exceeding many flocks, and the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, a, a, a little lamb, which had been... Um, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and, and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. You know, they do that in Israel. And they did that during the Passover lamb. They would get the lamb on the 10th day, and it would be with them for several days, for at least three or four days or more. And they would, they would and the kids, can you imagine? Have you seen a lamb, how cute they are? Especially a lamb of the first year. They're white as snow. Their ears look like little buttons. You know, they're the cutest thing in the world. And, and how can you see something like that be sacrificed? You know, and it's just, it's a really hard thing. And so this man had one little ewe lamb. Who is that little ewe lamb that Nathan is talking about? It's Bathsheba. He's given a parable to David. And the traveler came to the rich man who refused to take his own flock 
from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one of the wayfaring man who had come in him. But he took the poor man's land, prepared it for the man who had come to him. So we now we see that the rich man here is being portrayed as David. The poor man is Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. And the little ewe lamb is Bathsheba. And David doesn't recognize this. As a shepherd that he is, he is so into this parable. He's listening to it. And as each phrase is coming out of Nathan's mouth, David's blood pressure begins to boil. Because in his heart as a shepherd, you just, this is something you don't do. You don't go to another man's field and steal a lamb. You, you do with your own. And so, verse 6, he, and he shall, and so, I'm sorry, back in verse 5. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. Again, just the anger of a true shepherd, a good shepherd that David was. He wasn't so much a good shepherd at this time in his life, but David was a good shepherd. And that's partly what gave him such anger. This is just unheard of. And notice what David said. Not only shall he surely die, but he shall restore fourfold to the lamb because he had done this thing and because he had no pity. Isn't it funny that he said he, he first should die and then he's got to repay? Isn't that what, I mean, how can you repay if you're already dead? So you can see how David is becoming unhinged again. This sin had taken a part of his life so much that he's not even really being coherent and not only that, the law didn't require the death of a person who stole a lamb. This was just David's wrath speaking. Often when we're angry, our hearts, isn't this true? Our hearts can become so sour and so ugly that it goes way beyond the law's demands. And this is just the result of the fall in us, isn't it? The fall of man. The law says this, but we can get so angry that we want to go above and beyond the law. In James chapter 1, verse 19, it says, James, the half-brother of Jesus, says this, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, notice, swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is not going to be meted out by David in this, in this parable by telling him that this man should surely die. Is that going to bring about the righteousness of God? But notice it says, Be swift to hear and slow to speak and slow to wrath. But what was David doing here? He was quick to speak and quick to wrath. Exactly opposite of what James would tell us many years afterwards. But what does the law say for somebody who has stolen a lamb? In Exodus 22, it tells us, if a man steals an ox, this is verse 1 of Exodus 22, you might want to write that in the margin of your Bible. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Four sheep. So David had it right. He should have restored fourfold. But kill the man? <laughs> Isn't this usually the case when we see our sin in someone else? We hate it even more when we see it in somebody else. We look at the mirror, 
We look in the mirror and we see the issue of our own heart, which may be the same exact thing, but it doesn't bother us so much. But when we see that very same thing in someone else's life, it just causes the anger to rise up. And this is exactly what happened with David. David knew. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Isn't that what was happening here? David's all upset about the lamb. He's got this beam hanging out of his eye. And this other guy's got a speck in his eye. Or how can you, Jesus said, say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And that's what happens when we are in sin. It always looks worse on somebody else, but on us, not so much. We look in the mirror and say, oh, you're so handsome. <laughs> But then we see it in somebody else, and it just brings up the ire, doesn't it? And we get angry. And because of David's own moral failure, he seemed unable or unwilling to correct these things. And we'll see that he was unwilling even, not only to, in his own life, but in the life of his family. As we go on into the book of 2 Samuel, we're going to see David's family slowly coming unhinged as well. And then in verse 7 it says, Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. And thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. And what a shock this must have been for David. He was totally into this story as a shepherd. I mean, Nathan, I mean, God gave this parable to Nathan to tell to David. Because God knew how best to bring David out. All he had to do was bring up a shepherd and a lamb being stolen out of a field. And boy, that would just engage David like no one else. He said, you are the man. And have you, ever been, have you ever been sleeping and a loud noise wakes you? Or have you had a best friend throw cold water on you while you were sleeping and you wake up? Have you had anything in your life where you've been jostled so quickly it just it shocked you? This is what this was for him. Because David's hearing this parable. And Nathan says, you're the man. And David, all of a sudden, everything just flooded right into his memory. The thing that he'd been trying to put away and put away from him was coming front and center, and the conviction fell just like that. It was a hammer blow from heaven, and the conviction of God fell upon him. Has it ever happened to you? The conviction? Again, exciting thing to talk about on a Thursday night, right? <laughs> <laughs> but it is in the Word of God. And we must talk about it. It's not an easy topic to talk about, but has that ever happened to you where you've sinned a sin or done something and the conviction immediately comes upon you? Thank God for that conviction. You know why? Because if you are, if you are not convicted 
when these kinds of things happen in your life, when God convicts you of a sin, there's a real problem. Because it's possible to continue in a sin and to do something for so long and not get, it, and not get caught that your heart becomes calloused. It becomes seared pretty soon, and you've avoided the, spirit, the voice of God, the, spirit of, the voice of the Spirit of God for so long that you become numb to it. And hopefully none of us get to that place where we become numb to sin. I think it's a great gift, the conviction of God upon our lives. And whatever it may be, it doesn't have to be any one of these great sins that we're talking about. It could be anything, but the conviction of God is a wonderful gift for us. I like to think of it as a gift because if I'm convicted about something, I'm thankful that the Lord is still working and, I'm, you know, and we're sensitive to the moving of His Spirit. It's when I don't care and I could care less. That's when I begin to worry. But notice, the Lord goes on in verse 8. He says, I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have also given you much more. See, it was a customary thing when a king overthrew another king in the ancient Middle East that there was... Um, uh, that the new king or the king that succeeded or conquered the other king, he would also take the other king's harem. That was very customary in the ancient Middle East. The Bible doesn't mention that David took any of Saul's wives to himself. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that it didn't happen, but there's no record of it at all. The only wife's name of Saul that we know of is in 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 50. Her name was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimez. But other than that, we don't know of any other wife. And then the Lord goes on and he says, Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. And again, David, when you look at this, he committed at least two sins here. We know when we look at the Ten Commandments, these are fairly obvious to us, but this week, as I was looking at this again, I found that there are probably six out of ten that David was guilty of. Because sin begets sin, doesn't it? it? Sin never likes to be alone. It always likes to have a companion, and it always likes to have more. And whenever you sin and try to cover up, you've got to do other things to keep that quiet. And sin begets sin begets sin. It's like Jesus said, it's like yeast and, and bread. It, it, you put a little bit of it in there and it begins to grow and pretty soon you got this big plump of dough. And that's what sin is. That's what sin does. But we know the very obvious ones. In Exodus 20, verse 13, you shall not murder. We know he was guilty of that. You shall not commit adultery. Certainly he was guilty of that. But what about also these commandments? 8, 9, and 10 of Exodus, or the 8th, 9th, and 10th commandment. You shall not steal. He stole another man's wife. <laughs> and you shall not bear false witness. That's another one. David used deceit and lies to get Uriah to go down to his own house and be with his wife. He lied to him. He, he wasn't telling him the truth. He was bearing false witness. So now you've got another sin. And then in verse 17 of Exodus 20, it says this, You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his house, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox or his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Certainly David was coveting Bathsheba before he had even did anything about it. 
That was probably the original part of it. He coveted her. So now we got five sins, five commandments broken. But arguably, he also broke the very first commandment. And what is that? You shall have no other gods before me. Now, I don't think David was one of these individuals who was dominated by a particular sin. I think he was set up. I think David's own character at that moment, he, he made some really bad mistakes here. But I don't think David was one of those guys where he was always ogling women. I don't think David was one of these people that had a great problem here. But he had a problem in this instance because he allowed it to continue. And isn't it true that lust and adultery, fornication... Although not in David's case, it didn't rule over him in the sense that it was something that it was always on his mind. I mean, when I think of these things, I think of Samson. That was one man who was given over to those kinds of things. We see that meted out in his life, but not so David. David just made a really horrible mistake. But the first commandment is, have no other gods before me but lust and fornication, adultery. They can become a god to a person. I've seen it with people, with men and women. It becomes a God to them. It becomes the thing that satisfies their soul. It becomes the thing that they will do above anything else. They, it's, it's like the thing that they're, they're just bent on. In Romans chapter 13, so now we, we see David breaking six of the ten. And that's usually what sin does. It's never happy just by itself. It's gotta, it needs some friends to come along and join the party, right? In Romans 13, Paul, writing to them, he says, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Sound familiar? You shall not covet. And if there be any other commandment, are all summed up in the saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. But was David loving his neighbor at this time? Yes, her, but not Uriah. He wasn't loving. Love wasn't the thing that was governing his heart. At that moment, it was something else. It was passion, it was desire. In verse 10, it says, Now therefore, God speaking again. And here are the, the, the results, the prophecy that God is going to speak against David. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me. Notice, you've despised me. Wait a minute. Wasn't, wasn't the sin against Bathsheba and Uriah? But God sees it as an affront to him first. Isn't that interesting? When we sin, we sin against God and then other people. We first sin against him, and then it's people. He said, Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. Verses 10 and 11 are the prophecy of the Lord. You might want to put a, a bracket around them because these, this is the result. This is the consequence. And it's interesting because David had taken Uriah's, or uh, David had Uriah's life taken by the sword. David 
had also taken Uriah's wife to himself. Now because of that, the sword would not depart from his house, and David's wives would be defiled by his son Absalom, his neighbor, or next of kin, in other words. There's a Latin phrase that says lex talionis. Have you heard of that? Lex talionis. It means an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We read this in Leviticus 24, verse 19. What does it tell us? If a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has caused disfigurement of a man, so shall it be done to him. And what really is this all about? It's about the, the punishment being the same as the offense. And how different, again, I'm not promoting this necessarily, but think of how different our society would be if something was done to a person, that would happen to the other person when they finally got caught. I think it would slowly bring sin to a crawl or at least keep it in check. But now people can do all kinds of things and the judge will slap their hand, they'll go to jail for a day or two, get bonded out, and now they're walking the streets again with no, no consequence other than an inconvenience of a couple nights in jail, when they've destroyed somebody else's life, right? But God is going to use this law from Leviticus. He's going to use this, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He's going to use that on his servant David. He said, David, you did this. You caused Uriah to fall by the sword and you took his wife. The sword's not going to depart from your home, and your wives are going to be taken. You're forgiven, and I love you, David. And David did crack like an egg. David did repent, and his heart was truly broken, and he did repent. He never did this again. This was a one-time huge mistake in his life that he never did again. And God says, David, I love you and I forgive you, but there are consequences for this sin. And those things I'm not going to withhold. There's something about that. You know, some people think that, well, if God forgives me, he takes away the, the punishment. Not so. Certainly the sin is taken care of, but there are consequences. Sometimes it can be a, a trust that's broken in a home. A wife that no longer trusts you. A husband that no longer trusts you because of that sin. It's going to take time to heal that deep wound that was, that breach of trust that was taken. It takes time. And those consequences take time. And we're going to see that that was happening in David's life. And we'll see it in the subsequent chapters as we go along. But the sword shall never depart from your house. In First Chronicles chapter 3, Verses 1 through 9, it gives us an account of David's sons and even his daughter and some of his, his, his children. It says, Now these were the sons of David who were born to him in Hebron. Notice the firstborn was Amnon the, by Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess. The second, Daniel by Abigail, the Carmelitess. The third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Telmei, king of Jeshur. And then in verse 9, it tells us, these were all the sons, it goes on and gives more sons, but for the sake of time, these were all the sons of David, besides the sons of the concubines and Tamar, their sister. Tamar is going to come into play here shortly. The sword will never depart from your house, David. We'll see this prophecy come to fruition. We'll see 
specifically in Absalom's life, in Ammon's life. And unfortunately, their, their half-sister Tamar would be the one that this would be the result of. Because you remember, as we will see in subsequent chapters, Amnon forced his sister, his half-sister. And because David in his moral state was so um, weak, he did nothing about it. And so what happens? Absalom, his other son, a half-brother to Amnon and a half brother to Tamar, he rises up and kills Ammon. Now he's got a son who's died. Now he's got a son who, another son who is a murderer. And we'll find that later on that Absalom himself will be killed by the sword, by Joab, David's general. We'll see that in chapter 18. So thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes, give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. And again, all of this will be played out. For you did it secretly, David, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. And the thing we have to remember is that there is always a consequence. And whatever is done in secret will be made manifest. It will be made known. For the unbeliever, in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5, what does it tell us? Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will, bring, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. That's for the unbeliever, because that's what's going to happen at the great white throne judgment. All the secrets, all the hidden things of darkness are going to come to light. But what about for the, um, well, we'll get to the believer in just a second. But notice what it says in Luke. Jesus speaking, it says, In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude, this is Luke chapter 12, verse 1, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one upon another, Jesus began to say to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Notice what he says, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have spoken in the ear in inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops." Now, this obviously in context is speaking of the unbeliever. But even for the believer, what, what is the, this kind of flips it around, though. And I like this. This is a good place to end on this section. is in Matthew chapter 6. What are the good things done in secret by the believer? It says, but you, Jesus said, when you pray, when you go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Do you see the juxtaposition between the two of those? The unbeliever, whatever he does in secret, becomes known. For the believer, what he does in secret will also become known, be rewarded. And we have to decide which side of that we want to be in. I don't know about you, but it's a no-brainer for me. I want to be rewarded by God rather than have him to have to show me those things. And verse 12 speaks to me also of accountability, doesn't it? For you have done this thing in secret, but before all Israel I will do this. 
In Luke 12, verse 48, Jesus says, For to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. And David, as the king of Israel, again, God not allowing him to just skirt this under the rug. He was the king of Israel. Arguably one of the greatest kings Israel ever had. Probably the best. Even in spite of his mistakes. Verse 13, it says, So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And I, can you imagine the, the, the crack in his voice and, the, and the, 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 the brokenheartedness in which David said this? I have sinned against the Lord. And, and finally, it just, it's like a sword that's been lanced. And finally, the release is there. After the year of trying to cover this thing up, I have sinned. And Nathan said to David, Lord, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Why is that? Because he deserved to die. For each one of these things, David deserved to die. For the, for the adultery and for the murder, he deserved to die. So why didn't he die? Why wasn't the law meted out that day? Why didn't Nathan say, David, you're done. We're going to take you and the executioner is going to you know, take care of business here. Why didn't that happen? Why did Nathan say what he said? Because God told him to. And why did God tell Nathan, Nathan, go tell David that he's not going to die. Your sin is covered. Have you ever noticed that God is a God of grace? Even in the Old Testament, most people think that God in the Old Testament is just this angry God who just wants to fire brimstone on people. But no, he's giving grace to David. Why? Is it because David deserved it? No, not necessarily, but you know what God saw in David's heart that you and I can't see, that nobody at that time could see, is their brokenness. We're going to see that in Psalm 51. Hopefully we can read it together. Uh, We're rapidly running out of time, though. But the brokenness of David's heart, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. And that is the difference. That's the difference between him and Saul. David broke, and he truly was repentant. And that's what God wants. Even after a year of hiding from God, he finally comes to terms with it. And what a wonderful God we serve. In fact, turn with me to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. You'll notice in the prologue of the psalm, it actually says, To the chief musician, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So David wrote this. Perhaps he wrote this during that year of his roaring. Look at what it says. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before you. Notice, against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was born I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me, acknowledging that he's a sinner by nature, doesn't he? And behold, your desire, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. So purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. David's bones were like... like 
he probably felt like a dried up old man because all of his, just a life, the vitality was just being sucked out of his life over this sin and just the guilt and the shame of it. Hide your face from my sins, God, and blot out all my iniquities. I love this. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. How could God forgive the man? Here it is. A broken heart. Create in me a clean heart. Do you have a clean heart? Do you have a clean heart? Or are you claiming to be a Christian, and you are, but maybe you're still harboring a filthy heart? And it doesn't necessarily have to be anything like the sins we're talking about tonight. It could be anything. It could be unforgiveness. It could be harboring bitterness, hatred. Recreate in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me in your generous spirit. David here crying out through the psalm. And what a blessing this psalm has been to so many men and women who have been in the same spot, who have gone through this very same thing and read this psalm and go, oh my goodness, this is exactly what I was thinking. And this is exactly how I was feeling. Then, notice, restore me to the joy of my salvation. Uphold me by your generous spirit. Notice verse 13, I love this. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Notice, when, when, you, when David goes through this, this horrible thing in his life, is he just licking his wounds and moving on? No, he, so, he says, no, first I'm restored and then I'm going to teach. I'm going to tell others about it. See, that's what we need to do is when we go through something horrible, we learn something, share it with somebody. Because you're gonna, there's so many people going through different things. And when you've gone through it yourself, what a great balm of Gilead you are to that person. What a great encouragement you are to a person who is sore and in the middle of their sin and just lying there in anguish. And you can say, you know what? I've been there. David says, I've been there. For a year, I wallowed in my own tears on my bed. My soul was racked with guilt. I felt like my prayers were like iron hitting the ceiling. Nothing was happening. I, I just, I was dying. And how you can come, and then you can read a psalm like this. Deliver me, God, from bloodshed, O God. The, o God of my salvation, my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Notice, the worship is even restored. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praises. There it is, his witness. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. David, when he, you notice that there's no mention of him doing a, an offering. I mean, maybe he did, but the Bible seems to be silent about it. I looked for it. I couldn't find it. God forgave him without the sacrifice. Are you kidding me? Yeah, because of his heart, attitude. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God, here it is, are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness. Yes with burnt offering and whole burnt offering, and then they shall offer bulls on your altar. They certainly did those things, but the thing that was most important was the heart. God could care less about the bulls and all that stuff. He was more concerned about the inward reality of our lives. That's why he was so hard on the Pharisees and the scribes. Everything was external. Everything was a show. Everything was on the outside. 
but they weren't looking inside. And God says, you know what? I would have much rather the inside was dealt with. We're rascals, aren't we? This, this heart of ours, our old nature is still in us. I mean, there's a new sheriff in town, right? If you're a born-again believer, you've got the Spirit of God indwelling you. But that old nature is still present. And oh, how he needs to be crucified daily, right? Don't let him up. Keep, him, keep your foot on him and you stand on him and do not let him express himself any longer in your life. The Spirit of God wants it. The Spirit of God desires that for you. Why? To take away your fun? No, hardly. So that you have a really blessed life. Because a real blessed life is one that is no, there's no guilt, there's no uh, remorse. Isn't that true? Think of how often people feel guilty and they have remorse. What does that do? It just takes your life away. But when you can actually lay your head on your pillow and you've, you've confessed everything and God says, I love you and I accept and I forgive you. Huh. There's nothing better than that. That's like a kid who walked into FAO Schwartz and the parent says, you can have whatever you want. Pile it all up. Send it all home. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're like a kid in a candy store when you've been forgiven by God. Just the great joy and the clear conscience. Isn't that worth something? It is. In Psalm 32, the first five verses, it says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And that was certainly David. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And notice what he says. He, he says, when I, when I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. And here, I believe David is recounting that year of him hiding from God, and it just eating him like a cancer. <laughs> Though I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. And I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess, notice, my transgression to the Lord. And notice, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Doesn't that sound like 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 and 10? 8 through 10? If we confess, he's faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us. Notice back in our text in verse 14, However, because of this deed you have given great occasion, God says, to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also who is born of you shall surely die. David didn't die, but the child did. So what were David's consequences? If we were to write them down, what were they? Well, obviously the sword wouldn't depart from his house. We know that his two sons would be murdered. His one daughter would be um, taken advantage of. His own son, Absalom, would seek to take the throne and be with David's concubines. His firstborn son from Bathsheba would die. That's pretty, that's pretty much there, isn't it? And there was the innocent substitute. Do you ever notice that? There was the innocent substitute for David's sin. God says, because you did this, I'm taking your son. David didn't die, but his firstborn son from Bathsheba did. What was the other, one? other consequences? It would give occasion to the enemies to, to the blaspheme the Lord, and also the headache and the guilt that would, he would carry with him. And David was not quite the same after this, was he? 
He wasn't quite the same. He gave us some of the richest psalms for us to, to I hate to say enjoy, but to, some of them, yes, to enjoy, but some of them are heart-wrenching when you're going through things and it really ministers to you. But it just brings about the scripture that says the wages of sin is death. We all know this and we see it here in David's life. The wages, it's what you get when we sin. There's always death. Maybe a physical death. Maybe a relationship that's lost. Maybe a trust that's been forsaken and, and, and broken. Notice verse 15. Then Nathan departed to his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. So after the son is born, so David therefore pleaded with God for the child, and David, notice, fasted, and went in and lay all night on the ground. And so the elders of his house came and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. And then when David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. And therefore David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Do you realize? He. David, you had a son. He is dead. In 1 John, it tells us that there is a sin leading to death. I don't want to make a big deal out of this, but I, I just found it interesting that David didn't die, but the consequence of his sin, his firstborn son would die. God forgave him. Yes, he forgave him, but there are consequences. Now, here's the cool thing, is that that son is in glory. We'll get to that. So David arose from the ground. He washed and anointed himself, changed his clothes. He went in, notice, into the house of the Lord. And then he went into his own house. And when he requested, they set food before him. And he finally ate. And so, um, you know, David, um, obviously this is very different from what most people encounter. Normally after the child has died, you would think that he would, then he would be fasting and praying and going through all the affliction. But David knew that God was just in doing what he did. And he knew there was nothing he could do about it. He had to appropriate and understand that God forgave him, and then he also had to realize that God also took my son. And boy, that is a bitter pill, isn't it? To know that you've been forgiven, but God told him, but your son I will take. Oh my goodness. That will level you. If you've got any blood in you at all, that will just level you. And I think that's why David was like, you know what, God? From this moment onward, I am yours, and I'm not going to mess around like this ever again. We're not to despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction, it says in Proverbs. Whom the Lord loves, he corrects. Isn't that true? He corrected his son. Whom he loves, he corrects. So if he corrects you, or you're in good company. Because God loves you and me. He doesn't want us to continue in our mourning and our continuing in our sin. Notice verse 21. Then his servant said to him, What is this that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. 
And he said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him. Now, I want you to underline this in your Bible because this to me is one of the most profound things in all of the Bible. David says, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Do you realize what he's saying right here? Now, we can't build a great deal of doctrine around this, but I will say this, and I believe it's true. David knew that when that child died, it went to the presence of God. That child didn't even have the understanding of sin. It was so young. It was only seven days old. I believe there's an age of accountability, and that's going to be different for every person. But this child had no understanding. When an infant dies like that, I believe with all my heart that that child goes back to the Lord. David knew that instinctively. Because he says, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. And what's even more profound about that, I find, is that David knew that he was forgiven and that he was going to heaven as well. Even after all that he had done. Now think about that. <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a word in the Psalms that says, Selah, think about that. That is huge. Do you understand the grace that he comprehended here? He knew that the child would be in glory and that he wasn't going to be able to bring the child back, but he was going to go to the child. He knew that he was going to go to heaven in spite of all that he's done, even because of the things he did. Wow. That is huge. He comprehended the love and the grace and the forgiveness of God. Believe me, or don't believe me, but let me encourage you to believe in God's forgiveness. It will heal you. It will give you a right understanding of the character of God when you take him at his word. Regardless of what you've done, we are so racked with stuff. We feel guilty about many things. But do you believe the promise of God? That if you confess it, he'll forgive you? Do you really believe it? If you do, then you can be like David. And he can say, you know what, I, I can't bring him back, but I know I'm going to him. Wow. Wow the grace that was comprehended. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son and called his name Solomon, which means peace. And now the Lord loved him. And he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet, and so he called his name Jedidiah. Solomon, his name means peace, but God gave him a name called Jedidiah, and it means beloved of the Lord. Very interesting, isn't it? God loved him, even in spite of all the sin and all the things that had happened. And now we get to the rest of the chapter here. We'll just go through it fairly quickly. It says, Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the people of Ammon and took the royal city. We looked at this in chapter 10, partly. And And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbi, and I have taken the city's water supply. Now, therefore, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called after my name. What a gracious thing that Joab had done by telling David, come while the, the city is weak. You come and finish it off so it will be called by your name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbi to fight against it, and he took it. And then he took their king's crown from his head. Its weight was a talent of gold, which is somewhere between 75 and 92 pounds of gold. Try putting that on the market today. How much would that be? Hmm. 
He took the king's crown and with precious stones, and it was set on David's head. Also he brought out all the spoil of the city in great abundance. And he brought out the people who were in it and put them to work with saws and iron picks and iron axes, made them cross over to the brickworks. And so he did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. And then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. To Jerusalem. And the people of Ammon, the Ammonites, were very brutal. The Bible tells us that they were just brutal, brutal people. You, and uh, if you get an opportunity, go to 1 Samuel chapter 11 and read about what they wanted to do and take out the eyes of the men of the Israelites, of, of the, uh, the, Gibe, or the, um, uh, the men there on the east side. I'm drawing a blank with it. But even Amos tells us that they ripped open the pregnant women. So these, these men were animals. And God was going to judge them. And he certainly did by using his own people but as we look at this chapter, it's heartbreaking, isn't it? But it's, it's so important for us to, again, just... Ladies and men, that we would take these things to heart. And there's nothing that you've ever done that God can't forgive. Do you know that? As long as you have breath in your lungs, no matter what you've done in the past, no matter what you're doing right now even, maybe, no matter what it is, you confess it. And don't live a life of regrets like David did. Don't live a life that could have been, should have been, would have been. Do you see what that, I mean, what would his life been like? How great of a king might he have even been greater had he not fallen to temptation here and did what he did? One sin leading to another. How much greater was what his kingdom have been? And how much greater the lives of men and women that we you and I both know? How much more fruitful could their lives have been if they had not given in to those things? So let us learn from David. Let us learn from those things. And draw close to the Lord and ask him, to, Lord, help us. Help us all. Amen? Let's stand and let's pray. Father, we thank you for this uh, passage of Scripture, Lord. No doubt, one of the hardest places in the Bible. And yet, Lord, we know that we are men and women of like passions. We are no different than David. He wasn't a superstar. That each one of us, Lord, has the capability of doing these things. And so, Lord Jesus, we ask that you would help us. And Lord, for every man and woman in earshot of this, Lord, I pray that you would cause us to examine our own hearts again and put away those things that we know are an offense to you, Lord. Please cleanse us, Lord. Like David said in Psalm 51, create in me, create in us, Lord, a clean heart and renew a right spirit within us. Lord, how we look to look to you to do this work in us and how we thank you for that you desire to do it, Lord. So please bless us, Lord, as we go out from this place. Keep us safe. Lord, may our day tomorrow be sweeter than it was today. May we draw closer to you to, uh, tonight and tomorrow and, and, and be closer to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. Have a wonderful evening.